will turn to the book of Amos. We are in Amos chapter 6 this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but in our reading, we're only going to read verses 1 and verse 7. I'm sorry, 1 and 6 and 7. So we'll start with Amos 1, Amos chapter 6. This is our second woe that we're seeing Amos bring to the nation of Israel. And then we will read verses 6 and 7 to see the connection between this warning and the comfort and the ease of Israel and the reality that spiritual priorities were being neglected and then the consequences of those spiritual priorities being neglected. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Verse 6. Who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. Lord, what a dangerous position Israel was in. And what a loving, holy God that comes and calls them out of their stupor. Lord, I thank you, God, that you have left us a living testimony, a living word that is sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts to our very core. It reveals our thoughts. It reveals the intentions of our hearts. And God, as we look at this passage, we ask you today, Father, that God, that you would wake us up out of our comfort, God, that you would push us out into areas where we are experiencing you and relying on you in new and invigorating ways, God, that our relationship with you is, is vibrant, it is real, it's not commonplace, it's not mundane, it's not routine, it's not ritualistic, because that's where Israel had found themselves, and you've left us this record so it doesn't happen to us. Bless your word, God. We ask the Holy Spirit, the anointing that he's been given to every one of us, that he would come and he would be our teacher today. Help us, God, to make application. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, Amos probably isn't a real popular book to preach from. <laughs> I don't think I've heard too many messages from the book of Amos. And as I studied it this week, I could see why. I, I was really struggling to, to make an application from 750 B.C. to a nation that was so calloused, so cavalier, so complacent, so comfortable, and as I started meditating upon those things, I said, boy, that's not too far off from America. So 
the application is there. We just have to kind of look for it. But as I read those verses this morning, I want us to, to see the grammatical, syntactical relationships between verse 1, 6, and 7. Those are our readings, so I'm going to read them again, and you can follow along. But he says, Woe to you who are at ease. So it's a warning, isn't it? This is the second warning. And he tells us who he is warning. And he tells us where they are at. These people who are at ease and these people who are trusting. But what are they at ease at? Where is this location? One of them is Zion. And so if we go back historically, we know that Zion is the city of David. We know that Zion is where Christ was going to come and reign. We know that this is the city of the great king. We know that the mountains are round about Zion and that people would march and go up to Zion to worship God. And so it's a pronouncement of woe on those who are at ease in their religiosity. They're at ease, they're comfortable because they feel like they have checked all the right boxes off. They've got their study Bibles. They know the Psalms. They know the rituals, they know the routines, but at the same time, they were very complacent and very comfortable in all of their religion. And so it's a pronouncement of warning to those type of people. And so we could all fall into that category if we're not careful, if we become complacent. And then the next place, he says, woe to those who trust in Mount Samaria. This is where they were putting their confidence. Mount Samaria was the northern kingdom's worship sites. It was the high places of Samaria that they said, God, you are all around us, and we have your protection because we have these mountain high places here in Samaria. But they had denigrated down to worshiping Baal on the heights of these hills in Samaria. And so it was not a place that you wanted to put your comfort in. And then he says, the notable persons of the chief nation. The word for chief there is Rosheth, which means the first, the primary. And so what were they trusting in? They had a unique relationship with God that other people didn't have. They were the head nation. They were the number one nation. And that phrase number one or first or chief is used again in verse seven. And so let's look at that connection. Therefore, you shall now go captives as the first of the captives. You are, who are the notable ones, you rulers, you princes, you rulers over Jerusalem and Samaria, and you are the head nation. You're the foremost nation. You are the ones who are going to go in the first of the line when the Assyrians start taking people captive. There's a world of difference between contentment and complacency. Contentment is a gift from the Holy Spirit where you see and you sense your fullness of joy in Christ. That's what it means to be content, not to be comfortable or complacent, to be at ease, you are no longer controlled by your emotions when you are content. 
no matter what happens, you have this sense of overwhelming peace because you are content in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not your emotions. It's not your feelings. It has nothing to do with your physical circumstances. You are controlled by the knowledge that you are complete in Christ. Listen to the words of Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you that has come and spoil or rob or take away your joy through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic elements of the world, and not according to Christ, for you are complete in Christ. You can be content this morning because every one of your spiritual, emotional, and physical needs are found in the person of Jesus Christ. You're complete. Contentment is also something that we learn over a lifetime of experience, of walking with a faithful God. As you watch God in your life perform his faithfulness to you, you can learn to be content in whatever state you're in. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he thanked them for his gift. And he said, I know how to be abased. I know how to suffer need. I know how to abound. I know how to be rich, and I know how to be full. I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So contentment is a great gift that God gives us. Great gain is found godliness and contentment. For you and I have brought nothing into this world and we are going to take nothing out. So having contentment is one of the greatest gains that you and I can have. Let your lifestyle, your conduct be without covetousness. For he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And we can boldly say in the day of trouble, the Lord is my helper. What do I need? I am content in Christ. Now, complacency, on the other hand, complacency is a dangerous place to be, especially spiritually. You think of an athlete, you think of a scholar, you think of a student who becomes complacent, and their improvement ends right there. When you are complacent, you are ripe for the picking. You're ready to fall. Let him who thinks he stands... He's become complacent. Let him take heed lest he fall. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So when you and I become spiritually complacent, we are in a very, very vulnerable place. Complacency is not that I'm satisfied because God wants us to be satisfied. Complacency is the sin of self-satisfaction without a hunger to know and experience Christ fully. I hope this morning when we leave here that we will examine our faith and we will ask, have I got complacent? Am I still passionate for Christ? Am I hungering and am I thirsting for righteousness? God forbid that we would get to that place where we become complacent. We know when we have become complacent, when we turn off our critical thinking skills, 
When we are complacent, we don't listen critically to the Word of God. We are not discerning when we hear teaching or sermons. We don't take it and apply it to our lives when we become complacent. Circumstances that lead to complacency is when we get to the place where we no longer tremble before God and His Word. Israel had gotten to the place of self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction leads to self-indulgence. And we can see that through this passage. They had silenced God's word in their heart. They were satisfied and they were led by their self-indulgence. They had silenced the prophets. Listen to Amos 2.12. You gave your Nazarites wine to drink. Now, you've got to know a little bit about the history of Israel in the book of Numbers. Nazarites were those who were devoted completely to God. And as a result of their devotion to God, they no longer got their hair cut. All of my sons went through a stage in their life where they took a Nazarite vow, <laughs> except for Brendan. He's the only one who's not gone through the long-haired stage. But I remember my son, Jordan, it looked ridiculous. I'll never forget him running the 3,000 meter out of Weber State, and it looked like Samson running down the track. <laughs> I don't know how he could run with such a bush behind his head, but, it, but all of my boys have kind of gone, Kelly really didn't kind of, yeah, he did in a way. But anyway, Nazarite was not to cut his hair. It was a sign that he was separated to God. The other thing he was supposed to do, he was supposed to refrain from anything that was unclean, and he was not to drink anything with wine, any alcohol, not even to eat grapes. Because he was totally separated to God. And Amos uses this as a figure of speech. He says, you are giving your young Nazarite men wine to drink. That's how complacent you've gotten. That's how laxed you have been in your spiritual principles. You're no longer applying God's word. That's what his point. And then he says this. You have commanded the prophet saying, don't prophesy. What had brought them to this place? Well, Jeroboam was an excellent administrator, and he was a military genius. And those things actually were the detriment of him spiritually and to his people spiritually. God wants us to be efficient. God wants us to plan, and God wants us to have foresight. But those are not the things that we trust in. Those are not the things that we rely in. And Jeroboam had replaced those things for the living God. And he and his people had become complacent. They had pushed their kingdom to the zenith of power. They had recaptured the northern and furthest border of Hamath and all the way to the valley of Arava, which is the lower part of the Dead Sea. And that's where the southern kingdom began its empire. And Jeroboam had spread the nation as far as King David had. And so the people were comfortable. They were complacent. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king of Israel, and he reigned for 41 years. That was one of the longest reigns of the northern kingdom. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 14. He restored the coast of Israel. And I gave those two, two designations. One was Hamath, and the other was, was the the plain or the sea of Harabah. 
which means the desert place, which is probably the Dead Sea. So now Amos pronounces his second woe on this complacent group of people. Complacency is a spiritual killer. Woe to those who are at ease. To be at ease means that you're just undisturbed, which leads to self-confidence and complacency and a lackadaisical carelessness and an attitude that says, you know what, I have got everything under control and I'm not seeking fervently after God. This is where they were at. Woe to those who are east. Woe to those in Jerusalem, the capital city, where David reigned and where Jesus Christ was going to come and reign. It was Judah's worship center. They were trusting in. Now, the word trust is a positive word, but in this context, it has a negative connotation, which means they were unsuspecting, they were overconfident, because they were the capital city and the religious shrines of the northern kingdom. He calls out the notable ones of the nation, the chief nation. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, we are told what kind of position the nation of Israel had. They were a special treasure above all the people on the earth. When you read the warnings in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, and you look at that chapter, God spells out all that they were going to inherit by going into the land. And then he gives a warning. Don't forget where all these things came from. When you go into fields that you didn't plant, and when you go into homes that you didn't build, don't you forget, don't you get complacent, don't you get comfortable and forget all what God has done for you. And so the ease and the comfort that we have in America, it is a wonderful blessing, but at the same time, it can be a curse. The psalmist said, oh God, I don't want to be too poor that I steal, but God, don't bless me till I forget your name either. And that is where Israel had come. Complacency has only one cure, and that is self-evaluation. Look at verse 2. It's an imperative command, two commands. Go over to Kalana. I'm probably mispronouncing that. And see, that's the second imperative. Go over to Kalana and see. And from there, go, I'm sorry, go to Hamath the Great. The great is actually an adjective. It's the Hebrew word which means many, plenteous, prosperous, full. So it was a city that had a huge population, and it was full of riches, and he's telling the Israelites to go and see those places. Go over to Gath of the Philistines. Gath was the capital of the five kings of the Philistines. So what is he instructing them to do? He's instructing them to do some critical evaluation. That is the cure for complacency. He says, I want you to go and look at those other countries. 
And then he says, I want you to do a comparison. I want you to look at your life. I want you to look at your nation. Do some self-scrutiny. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Now, historically, we need to know what's going on here. Kalana, Hamath, the great, the wealth, the prosperous, the many, and Gath, these were powerful cities, and they were being subjugated by the mighty and powerful Assyrian Empire. And he says, you guys are sitting at ease. You're trusting in all of your complacent blessings. Now, I want you to go over. I want you to see what I am doing, God says. I want you to look around you and take note because you are not exempt, Israel. And the same message is for you and I. We are not exempt. When we get comfortable, when we get complacent, when we get careless and reckless about our spiritual life, we need to take some evaluation. What happens to other believers in that position? This week I heard and listened to the story of a mega church pastor. He pastored 15,000 people in Houston, Texas, a Baptist church there. And he wrote a book called Goodbye to Jesus. Now, what happened to that pastor? What happened to that ministry? They got comfortable. They got complacent. And God says, I want you to open up your eyes. It can happen to any one of us. Peter said, I will never betray you. And it wasn't just Peter. The other disciples said the exact same thing. And all it took was two little maiden girls for him to deny that he even knew Jesus. Take some spiritual inventory. That is the only remedy for complacency. Complacency causes us to shift our spiritual priorities. Without evaluation, we will embrace wrong views. Verses 3 through 6. Woe to you who put off the day of doom. There's a the putting off of self-scrutiny, the putting off that I need to judge myself, putting off the idea that it's never going to happen here, it's not going to happen to us. And so without self-evaluation, we will embrace the wrong views. We become ignorant, we ignore the reality, and there's no solution and it actually becomes worse. Look what happens when we put off the day of doom. We actually, when we do this, look at the next clause. All these participles are translated who. And what do we do when we put off the day of doom? When we don't reckon ourselves and we don't do this evaluation, we don't get critical about our lives, we cause, we cause the seat of violence to come near. I just want to give you a footnote. The word violence there is the word Hebrew word Hamas. <laughs> but that just shows you a little bit of, uh, about the, why that name was chosen by that terror group. It's a Hebrew word, which means violence. But when you and I 
put off this critical self-evaluation, what do we do? Then we cause it. We draw the city or the seat or the throne of violence to come near to us. So we stop critically thinking, and we allow things to come into our lives that have no point or no purpose, no edification in the Christian walk. Causing violence to draw near implies that they were getting more and more calloused and more and more brazen in their sinful activity. When you become complacent, when you become self-satisfied, your senses are dulled. Words on the television screen that you used to repulse at, when you get complacent, it no longer has that same sense of, oh, I, I don't want to listen to this, I don't want to watch this. Your, your tongue becomes looser when you are not evaluating yourself. Words that you would never say start to come out of your mouth. Or words about somebody else behind their back, would, you would never dream of that. But when we put off the day of doom, we cause the throne of violence to draw near. It's a, it's a serious warning that he's giving us. The shameful apathy over what really matters so they got wrapped up in all these other things. They lie on beds of ivory. They stretch themselves out on couches. They eat lambs out of the flock. They're just going about their daily business. They sing idly. They've got nothing better to do with their time. Listen, when you and I put off the day of judgment, we start being wasteful in our time. We don't use our time correctly. We don't, uh, um, in Ephesians, it talks about redeeming the time. Walk circumspectly. Akrabus is the Greek word, which means that we are to live accurately. We're to take inventory of our life. Live circumspectly. Don't be unwise, but be wise. Understanding the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, by redeeming the days, redeeming the time, because the times are evil. And so what were they doing? They were just idly spending their time because they had become complacent. Our time is a great resource that God has given us, and he wants us to be good stewards of our time. And when we become complacent, our time is wasted. We do things that are frivolous, that are pointless, and have no bearing on eternity. A man prayed this prayer, and it's been sticking with me. And he says, he gets up every morning and he says, God, I want to do something today of eternal significance. And that's the kind of life that we should have. But when we become complacent, we just idly, frivolously lose our time. They invent music with musical instruments, just like David, who drink from wine from bowls. They anoint themselves with the best ointments. But here's the key phrase but are not grieved for the affliction of my people, the affliction of Joseph. There's a shameful apathy about what really, really matters. Not being grieved over the affliction of Joseph. Extravagance leads to that. Self-indulgence does to that. Idle in, in, in entertainment does that. Not grieved, literally, the Hebrew word means to become sickened to be broken over a nation that's walked away from God. And you and I ought to be broken. 
We ought to feel a sense of mourning when we look around at the lost state of our neighborhoods. And we see the direction that the United States is turning. If you're complacent, you don't see it. But when you're on fire with the Lord, you will look around and you see what's happening in our public schools. You see what's happening with our politicians, our political climate. And we need to be grieved over the condition of Joseph, our people. By striving for self, we end up losing everything. Jesus said said it like this in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. Whoever will save his life will lose it. And this is what's happening in 7 through 14. They were saving their own life. They had their luxurious beds. They had their couches. They had their bowls of wine. They were playing their music. Therefore, they shall go into captivity as the first of captivities. So I want to just give us three things here that happens when we start putting self first. The first thing, those who strive to be great will lose that greatness because they've got their wrong focus. To really to be great in the kingdom of heaven is to be a servant, isn't it? And those who were seeking to be great, the ones who were seeking to be chief, and they weren't serving other people, they were going to be first in line in the captivity. They would be the first ones to go. Those who recline at banquet feasts will be removed. The Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor your pride, I hate your palaces, therefore I will deliver up the entire city to captivity. The second thing that happens, complacency, when left unchecked, will lead to regret. Verses 9 through 11. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one close relative, literally the Hebrew word could be translated uncle or a friend, a close friend, an uncle, a relative, when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies, literally, that's exactly what the Hebrew says. And in Israel, you never burned. Cremation was not a part of the Israel culture. They buried bodies. But here, they burned the bodies because there's such regret. They didn't live the way they were supposed to be living. They didn't even go through the ceremonial of burying the bodies. The, the station was so full when the Assyrians come that all they could do was burn the corpses. They pick up the bodies, they take them out of the house, and one will say inside the house, are there more with you? They will say, none. The man on the outside then will reply, he will say, hold your tongue. We used to be able to praise God. We used to be able to go through all these wonderful ceremonies. But hold your tongue. Don't say anything. Don't mention the name of the Lord. Because we are living with regret. So that's the next thing that happens when we live complacency. When you get complacent and you look back at your life and you say, what a waste. I, I do that when I watch a television show sometimes. <laughs> Two hours. And I look and I go, man, I could have been done doing something worthwhile. Now, occasionally there's some good ones Tracy and I will watch. 
and most of them are. I'm not saying that we just sit around indulging on garbage television. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But you know what I mean? When you just watch it, you're like, ugh. Man, I could have done something worthwhile. And, and, but you put that on a scale of a lifestyle, and you regret it. Not a one of you dads out here is ever going to regret that you spend time with your children. None of you moms out here are ever going to regret that you spent quality time with your children, your grandchildren, those who love you. But every one of us will regret when we got complacent and we got lazy and we look back and we thought, boy, I wasted that time. Because life is but a vapor that appears for a short time and then vanishes away. So that's the second thing that happens when we strive for self. We end up being the first ones in line for the captivity. Complacency going unchecked, we live with regret. Complacency and self is self-defeating, and it's inexcusable. Let's look at verse 12 and 13. Complacency is self-defeating, and it's inexcusable. Do horses run on rocks? Rhetorical question, the obvious answer is no. Does one plow there with oxen? Of course not. What he is saying is complacency is inexcusable, and it is self-defeating. Who is hurt in the long run? It is you. It's the horse who cannot do that. It's the oxen who cannot plow there. Don't be complacent is what Amos is telling us today. And then he says, you rejoice over low devar. Two Hebrew words. The Hebrew word low means not, nada, nothing. Devar, the Hebrew word means matters. You rejoice over what doesn't matter. Complacency is self-defeating because those things that you're enjoying, they really don't matter in the long scheme of things, do they? That's what Amos is saying to us today. That's what the Lord is speaking to us, who say we have taken this city, I can't pronounce it, but the Hebrew word literally means horns because the horn was the strength of the animal. And he says, we have done it by our own strength. But behold, I will rise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. And that was the Assyrian, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to notice this. They will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath. Why is that significant? Jeroboam II had broadened the kingdom of Israel from Hamath to the Valley of Arabah. He had extended their territory back to its original state. And God says, because of your complacency, Every single gain that you made is going to be lost. He who saves his life will lose it. And he who will lose his life for Christ and the gospel will find it. Let's don't be a church that's complacent. The church of Laodicea is the perfect example of the complacent church. They were described as lukewarm. Complacency had blinded the eyes 
of the Laodicean Christian. Complacency will blind our eyes just as well. What did the Laodiceans say? They said, we are rich, we are increased with goods, and we have need of nothing. And here was the reality. You don't realize it, but you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. So what was Christ's remedy? I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. That's the remedy. Christ wants fellowship with you and I. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. God says, here is the simple remedy. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your complacency, open that door, invite Christ in and fellowship with him. He says, I counsel you. I want to give you some counseling. I'm, I'm not a great counselor, but I do know the wonderful counselor. And the wonderful counselor says this, you've been trying to buy everything under the sun, and I want you to buy from me. Gold that's been refined in the fire. I want you to buy from me. And I want you to find white clothes so that you can be covered and sense my purity. I want you to anoint your eyes spiritually so that you can see. All we have to do is open the door because Christ has come knocking and seeking fellowship with you and I. And that is the cure, the ultimate cure, for complacency. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this little book in the Old Testament that's packed with nuggets, Lord. God, it started out woe to those who are at ease, and it ends with you're going to lose it all. God, I pray that we live each life, each day, with eternal life in view. God, I pray that you'll just Wake us up out of our complacency, out of our stupor, out of our spiritual relaxed state. God, I pray that we will start venturing out, out of our comfort zones. I pray this in Jesus' name.